So this message is on the godly husband, and the subtitle is As Christ Loved the Church. And as we have been working together these last three months, and now this being the fourth month, we have been using a paradigm of Adam as the first man, Christ as the complete man or the teleological man. As we understand who we are as men, it is a uh, interplay between the old Adam who is, who is dead and the new Adam who is alive. And so as Christians, as Christian men, we cannot live ignorant of these archetypes in the Bible. These are overarching paradigms which impact every aspect of life. And the Bible is God's instruction for men. So last week we saw, or last month we saw how the Bible must be used as men if we are going to become mature in Christian self-government. The Bible speaks to every aspect and issue of life, and therefore, if we are to be mature in how we combat the temptations of sin as well as handle the circumstances of life, we have to know what the Bible says about everything. And so we really threw down the gauntlet last month because we, we said the goal for a Christian man would be to know the whole compass of Scripture. Not exhaustively, not perfectly, not in such a way as you never continue to read the scriptures, but in, a, in such a way as you understand the general teaching about that issue of life as it comes from God's holy word. So I want to look at two major passages today, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, as demonstrations of what the foundation of marriage is, and this will relate to how we think about searching for brides, as single men, and then also what Christ did for the church, which again interplays with how we look for a spouse and also how we relate to our spouse. And so, um, as we saw last month, the scriptures are the revelation of God for his world and his ways. Throughout the scripture, God has demonstrated his calling upon Christian husbands to imitate Christ's death. So this is what I believe the biblical theology of Christian husbands is, is you are going to die. So his powerful and efficacious love transformed the church. Christ did not die for the body in a token or sentimental way. His death was powerful, it was productive, it was fruitful. And therefore, as we imitate Christ's love, it must have the same end. So my aim this morning is that understanding the privileges and responsibilities that attend with holy matrimony, Christian men must use God's grace in faith-filled obedience. So by that I mean that we, just as we saw last month, we take what the word of God tells us about marriage and we believe it, renouncing unbelief, taking hold of great and precious promises and using those promises as the means by which we choose in the moment to die to self and to love our wives. So, um, as I said last month, we examined the necessity of the whole of Scripture for instruction in godliness and Christian living. It is not possible for a Christian to become mature without reading the entire Scripture. All of Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And so, just as you would respect a person you honor, listening carefully to their words... So also, as Christian men, we have to receive all of God's truth 
in every, on every page, in every word. So, seeing that Christ demands the whole of our lives, every aspect of our lives, we have to read and believe his entire word and obey him in every area. And as 1 John tells us, his commandments are not burdensome. So when I say that, if you are being sanctified towards Christ, you should love that idea. That shouldn't sound like a reinstitution of a law which you're not able to fulfill. Because Paul told us, that the, the aim of Christ's death was that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So for those who walk according to the Spirit, they, they want to love this. They either love this or are repenting to loving this. That is to fulfill God's word as it regards every aspect of life. So the difference between approaching Christianity as a spiritual, air quotes, spiritual religion that only affects my eternal destiny and doesn't begin to affect now is to not take God at his word. Because God gives us promises for the future and he commands us to obey today in the light of those wonderful promises and graces that he supplies. So we saw last month that a Christian may only govern himself and insofar as he submits to God's word. The Christian walk is not an autonomous project. We are not ruling our lives by our own dictate, but rather by God's dictate, God's word. So we touched on the Christian self-government of a man last month. We now are going to to turn to examine these two passages of scripture. And by this, I hope to demonstrate the outline, the very periphery or the silhouette, if you will, of a Christian man. In no way will this short, simple talk e- explain every detail of applying what it means to imitate Christ in our marriage. However, at the same time, this is the under, uh, the, the, this is the idea which is the foundation for all of the particular things. So you think to yourself, after this talk, I won't be really discussing how to argue well and how to repent and fight well. But in the moment, the thought or the paradigm that you must have in the moment while you are going through that fight or argument is, I'm called to die for her. That has to be at the back of your mind in everything with regarding being a Christian husband. So I want to look at three ideas. Adam's death for Eve, and that death is in air quotes, or in real quotes. Um, The reason I say death will become apparent in a minute. I want to look at, therefore, the death of Christ for the bride. And here I'm building on the assumption that God knew what he was going to do in the sending of his son to purchase the church, and therefore he showed what would take place beforehand. And it is therefore our responsibility to deeply see what is going on there. And then finally, our marriages as the experience or the practice of death and resurrection. So throughout the creation account, God has been declaring his approval over his handiwork, judging it as good. It's important that we see the patterns of scripture because sometimes much more is said in the pattern of the story than is said didactically in the story. God does not come out and make it explicitly clear unless, just like we learn how to listen to 
good music, we are taking note of the themes and the repetition and the variation on those themes. Over and over again, for five days, God calls what he has made good. And the sixth day, only after making man, male, and female, does God declare it complete as very good. So looking more closely at that sixth day, we find something extremely interesting. If we only read Genesis 1, we would not see what God desires to show us in Genesis 2, which is before the sixth day comes to a close, there is one different statement about that day. For five days, there has been good, good, good. And now when we come to the creation of man and woman, before woman comes forth, there's something that is not good. After instructing the man, that is Adam, to abstain from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God declares for the first time in the scriptures there is something that's not good. And immediately we might say, was it sinful that Adam was alone or did God make a mistake that God was alone? And here we have to be very careful. I'm not implying that in the least. The opposite of good is not necessarily evil. The opposite of good is just not good. And this is where our logic classes are helping us here. There was something missing in Adam's calling. Genesis 2, verse 18, the first time the Lord says there's something not good. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so if you don't notice this in the context of over and over, God is praising his own handiwork in creation, saying that's good. And when God says something good, that's good, he means it. You know, we, we use good as, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. And the way that God uses good is completely different. He means it's right, it's fitting. It's the way I made it, the way I want it. And here he says, it's not good. I will make a helper fit for him. What happens next implies to us that Adam is supposed to come to this conclusion as well. Because of what God does. Being God's vice regent, Adam is supposed to, at this moment, imitate God, that is, to be like him. Adam is already like God. God invested his likeness and image in the man. And as the man was beginning to learn how to live in God's world, the first task God gives as a good father is a small measured task for him to name the animals. And I think this is actually very important, especially when we get to the story of Noah's Ark. There's this theme where the beasts come up to the man to receive callings, whatever the man called it. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Our experience in English culture or American culture has devolved into the condition where our names are very insignificant. But names, biblically speaking, do not just describe collections of letters and organizations of sounds that by which you say at a person when you want to get their attention. Like, hey, Josiah. No, in the Bible, names have very much to do with who they are supposed to be. And so Adam here is acting as God's vice regent. He is bestowing order and purpose upon the created realm around him, upon his fellow creatures, because God told him to do this. It's important that you notice what he does. He calls them something. And then Moses seemingly narrates this, and whatever the man called every living thing, every living creature, that was its name. 
So you think back to the way that God has been creating. He's been speaking, and it was so. And now here, Adam is given. He's not speaking ex nihilo. He's not creating out of thin air. But he is designating and partitioning and ordering and bestowing dignity around his, his fellow creatures. And he's speaking something. And then whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Moses does not do this so that we would think, okay, maybe Adam spoke Hebrew. We got to go find what a dog is really supposed to be called. He's saying this in order that we would see that Adam's doing a God-like thing. He's been invested with a God-like image. He's in the likeness of God, and now he's supposed to behave like God. And so just, again, coming back to this theology of man, we are supposed to understand God is doing something much more than just telling how it was back then. He's telling us how it is supposed to be with us. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. You see how Moses uses those phrases that he used in Genesis 1? Adam is being invited to participate into the creation. Day six, he starts to work before creation is finished. Now, in saying this, I do not mean that God was insufficient to complete creation, but rather that as a loving God, he begins to invite Adam into his life, into the life of the triune being. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Moses' narration here, this last phrase, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Moses' narration of the fruit fruitlessness of Adam's search and Adam's later poem, which we'll get to in a minute, reveals Adam's internal desire for a helper. None of the creatures can help Adam fulfill his task to procreate and to fill the earth. It's dangerous in our culture right now to think about companionship and friendship and godly sexuality because the hyper-exaltation of sex as the god of our world system today says to us, it it invades and pervades the way we come to the scriptures. We must be careful. Adam is not longing necessarily just for a friend. There's no one who can help him fill the earth. That's the thing that's very important to see. So God does something about this, just as throughout all of creation, God lays hold of the raw materials. So God says, let there be light, and there was light, and he separated the light from the darkness. He does the same thing with the dry ground. He divides the dry ground from the waters. Here, God again takes hold of raw materials, very raw materials, and he opens Adam up. He brings forth a more glorious creature from the side of Adam. Each time that God lays hold of something, He glorifies it and beautifies it. So before Adam came into being, God took hold of the dirt and fashioned it and bestowed his image upon it. And so later Paul will reason the glory of man is Christ because there's something in the way that God made Adam to to express something about his nature. There was a beautifying of the raw materials. And we do this in our world today. If we're going to build a house, we have to cut down trees and make timber, and then we put up frames and we get drywall, and it's more glorious than it was before. We've taken dominion. The same thing, a very good example is a cake. You have flour, eggs, sugar, milk, a little bit of oil, and a lot of heat, and you create a party. 
out of raw materials. So we see in Genesis 2, 21 and 22, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. I have never broken a rib. I can imagine what this felt like when he woke up. But those who have broken a rib, they know that for weeks and months after that, they remember every single breath. They're reminded of their wound. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So, for the woman to come forth, Adam went through a death, and I'm putting quotes around that, to say that in this way, I believe the Lord is attempting to, is desiring to, rather, to communicate there was something that happened when Adam went under that deep sleep. And in fact, the Hebrew words, we don't have enough time to get into it, the Hebrew words imply and are used for, in other places, the state of death. And so I believe that this is a symbolic surgery. He is cut apart so that she could come forth. God did this that Adam might understand the means by which he is to love her, that is, giving up his life. Adam's song at this point demonstrates his satisfaction with his bride and the completeness of his task, for he names her. What was Adam's job before he goes under the deep sleep? He's naming his fellow creatures. He's bestowing upon them dignity and honor. He's giving them purpose. And he's, he's fulfilling God's task at the beginning. He's beginning to take dominion over the things which God has made. And this is why it's so important to see what Adam does. Notice, we are not told that Adam goes and consummates the marriage right away. The first action that Adam takes is to name her something. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This at last means this is the end of my searching and naming. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this miraculous bringing forth of the state of holy matrimony was not a simple event. God does not include these verses for us to think, boy, Adam had a great marriage or at least a great start. And then end there, in fact, God himself shows us that we're supposed to infer something about the state of marriage from this. This was God's inaugural union. This was his establishing of what marriage is supposed to be. This is the archetype for all marriages that come afterwards. In fact, God therefore declares in verse 24 and verse 25, God himself declares this act was supposed to be instruction for us. Now here at verse 24, it's easy to make a mistake because there's no quotes in our Bibles. And if you go back to the Hebrew, there's, no, there's usually no quotes anywhere. Same with Greek. Sometimes there's indentations, but it's, we don't have anywhere close to manuscripts of the Old Testament. The point is, verse 24 reads like it could have been Moses' words, But later in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes them as God said this. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. I believe verse 25 is where where Moses picks up again. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So meditating on God's instruction here for the account 
of the creation of man and his wife is seen as deeply applicable when we consider our search for a wife. And for those of you who are married, you no longer get to consider searching for a wife, but you should still draw some understanding from this passage. Although sinlessness, singleness is not a curse, believe me, there's no sinlessness there's no sinlessness in, in singleness or marriedness. Although singleness is not a curse. So right there, just singleness is not a result of the fall. That's, I feel like that would have set me free if someone would have told me that at 21. But I didn't get there and that's fine. Uh, it is not usually the final domestic state for most men. Right after Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 the disciples say, well, Lord, if we're not allowed to divorce anyone, how can we get married ever? What if we marry wrong? And he then says, there is a gift for those who can become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, let them become eunuchs. And instantly when you say that to a bunch of single people, the the sin of fear is greatly multiplied in the room. (laughs) Because the idea is that marriage is greatly difficult because sin has entered the world. But at the same time, for most Christians, they will become married. That's the way that, that it's played out over the 2,000 years of the church's teaching and life. But singleness is not a curse. So was Adam able to fulfill his role in filling the earth? No. However, what Christ says is because of the kingdom of God, there is a fruitfulness in the kingdom that is not procreation. Now that does not diminish the glory and goodness of the command to procreate, to fill the earth. However, and the reason why it's important to understand this is because for a couple who is barren, they would feel a sense of shame. And we have to understand that that is not the case. It is not a mark of God's disapproval. And in fact, the whole Bible is about God bringing forth children where there are none. So, Adam was not slack in fulfilling his duties before the woman was presented. So as godly Christian men who want to become married, we must understand Adam was busy doing his work in the way that he could before the bride was brought to him. And so you think about your calling and what you're supposed to be doing. You should not believe that you cannot do your calling in some measure without getting married. At the same time, Adam could not fulfill his task of multiplying without her. It's important to understand that. There would be no one here if Adam did not have the bride. So, Adam's marriage was founded upon his type of death. And by that I mean it's a symbolic death. He did not fully die. So, as single men who wish to be married, you must understand the call to be married is the call to die. And what a wonderful death that is. Of course, we know from the scriptures, Adam's death is not merely a type of the death of Christ to come. That is to say, it's not just kind of this trivial thing, but actually this was very intentional. God was doing something extremely important in this way. Just as Adam went under a deep sleep, so also at the cross, the world was covered in darkness at the death of Christ. For three hours, the sun was blotted out as the Lord died for his people. From Adam, the rib was removed, but on the cross, Christ was pierced by a spear in his side, producing blood and water. And the blood and water are deeply significant. 
1 John 5 tells us that the blood and the water testify about the atonement, the purity of God's people, and the cleanliness, the glorifying, the beautifying of God's people. Christ really died in her place. God's symbolism, however, of this event is much, much richer. It's not necessary to just look at the comparisons between Adam and the Christ. We also must be able to look at the contrasts, the differences. After the woman took and ate the fruit, Adam knew that she deserved to die. So you're standing there, just put yourself in Adam's place. You're standing there. You know God's prohibition. She has just taken that fruit. You know that she deserves to die. And you decide to take the fruit as well. Christ is not like this. Instead of tasting uh, Adam instead of tasting death on her behalf, he joined in her, not in deception but in rebellion against God. 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says that Adam was not deceived, which means that Adam did high-handed, full-knowledge rebellion against God's order. He wanted to revolt against God's ways. Though Adam did not truly die, Christ fully died, taking our death completely. And in fact, Adam does not die because of sin, and by die, again, I'm going back to air quotes here, Adam does not go under the knife because of sin, but Christ does. Though Christ's people did indeed take from the tree, he abstained, he did not commit sin, but he did taste death for every man among his people. Hebrews 2.9 says that he did this for the sake of his people, that they would not have to taste death. So just as Adam and Eve are eating of the fruit, it is a beautiful, glorious fruit, and upon eating it, it's full of death. Christ, on the sake of his people, for her behalf, he takes death from her. And this is why understanding the comparison between Adam and Christ is so powerful. Because Adam gains merely an earthly bride, but Christ gains a heavenly one. That is to say, the whole company of his redeemed and sanctified people forever. At the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21, we see John is writing what he saw. He saw a heavenly city coming out of, a city coming out of heaven descending to the earth. And he saw it as a beautiful, glorious temple city in which God himself dwells. And so this is the sort of pleasure and delight and desire that Christ has for his people. Christ's death, therefore, for his people was not acquiescence. That's a really big word, but I couldn't find a smaller, better one. Acquiescence is the sort of just kind of feigning away. When we talk about the death of Christ as Christ laying down his life, it doesn't mean he got run over by a steamroller. It doesn't mean he just kind of sat there and let it happen to him. Christ intentionally went to his death knowing full well what it would take to purchase his people and the fulfillment that he would gain in doing it. This wasn't like Jesus wasn't buying stock options on whether the cross would work. Jesus was fully committed to purchasing this bride and he was fully committed knowing it would cost him his life. Christ did not resign himself to death. And we see this throughout the Gospels. Luke 13, people come up and say, hey, um, the government's coming to get you. Herod wants to kill you. Get out of here. And he says, you go tell that fox. Notice what he does. He doesn't even feign 
political honor on a tyrant murderer king who just had killed John the Baptist. He calls that king a fox. I mean, what, what pastor in the land would ever do something like that? He, he called an evil fake king a fox because he was going around and, and spoiling the vineyard. So, because it was in obedience to the Father's will, Christ's death was efficacious. That is to say, it really worked. Christ declared it is finished, for he did save his people from their sins. Perhaps my favorite verse around Christmas time is Matthew 1.21. You will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's not making it possible. He really did it. He, his death worked. And so, as those who are trying to imitate Christ's death, we have to know if it's done in faith, it's going to work. It might not look like it works for a long time, but if we're trying to, by God's grace and his spirit, working on the pattern of his scriptures, using them as our promises by which we fight the temptation to be proud and to be arrogant and to be mean to our wives in the moment, that it will work. It will work. So Paul teaches, therefore, his hearers to imitate the reality of the substance of Christ and the church in their marriages. The reason I say the reality of the substance is that just as the temple and the tabernacle were given long ago to be signs and shadows which pointed forth to the true tabernacle Christ, so also God has given not only fathering and mothering and the raising of children to be a metaphor, but also especially Christian marriage is a symbolic visual parable that is acted out throughout all of life. We are saying something with what we do in our marriages. Paul in Ephesians has just laid out the grand vision for their calling. He's just begun to give them commands to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord. And so he begins to apply in great detail the teaching that this would produce in a marriage. He says in verse 22, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. "'For the husband is the head of the wife,' even as Christ is the head of the church. So he's drawing parallels. The wife has a head. That head is the husband. The church has a head. That head is Christ himself. And he himself is its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And you would immediately here understand that the church today, the visible church that we know and love and are, are wanting to be beautified, doesn't submit to Christ in every way. And where it doesn't submit, it's a shame and a folly to her, isn't it? When you look at these churches, I, I saw this tweet from a PCA pastor three weeks ago in which, or no, it was just last week, on Trinity Sunday, he was teaching that the Trinity is a contrary doctrine to the scriptures. Brothers, liberalism is sweeping the whole church in America. It's not just the liberal branches. And so it's, it's a shame and a folly to that pastor and, and would that the Lord would bring repentance. But the point is, when we think about what that requires, most of us hear these verses and we're like, see, I told you so, to our wives. And, and actually what it commands us to do is recognize 
as Christ is our head, unless we're submitting in everything, we cannot therefore ask our wives to submit at the same time. By God's design, in these verses, we see that the husband is the head, not is supposed to be the head. Let's just go back really clearly. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head. He doesn't say this is the goal of marriage. He says it is this case. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So in the places where the church does not recognize her head, it is bad. Unlike this analogy, we are tainted by sin, Christ is not, and therefore there are places in which we ourselves need to repent, and that's what Paul is doing with these verses. Whatever a man is before God will necessarily spill over into every aspect of his marriage and family. So a man who is hiding secret sin in his life, that secret sin will affect his wife and his children. If a man is immature, is not a hard worker, cheats on his taxes, is slack in church attendance, does not work by God's grace hard, it will spill over to his wife and children. It is inevitable that this is the case. All of the spiritual blessings which are ours in the church come to us through our head, Jesus Christ. He gave, God gave Christ to be the head of the church. And therefore, as Christian husbands, we do not take these verses and say, man, I was looking for some backup in establishing my dominance in this marriage, and now I've got spiritual warrant for it and authority, but rather we see, oh boy, I don't know what I signed up for. And that should be the godly response at all times. So, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 23, paraphrasing, if the eye is full of darkness, great will the darkness of the body be, because the eye is the lamp of the body. Likewise, if the head is a rebellious head, if a head is an unbelieving head, it will necessarily poison and infect and spread. As the head of his wife, the Christian man is not necessarily guilty for the sins of his family, but he is responsible What do I mean by that? Uh, Probably the most liberating quip of my early teenage years was when someone told me responsibility is the ability to respond. And it's not, if you do the etymology, it's not totally true. That's not what, that's not how you break apart the word. But the word responsibility simply means that you have the obligation to do something about it. So you see something going on uh, in your family, your son is beating up your daughter, you have the ability and responsibility to respond to it, to address it. Now we won't be getting into children raising this month, we'll probably be beginning that next month, but the point is, if there is something going astray in your life or in your wife's life, you are the one who is supposed to address it. The husband is to be the priest in the home. And by even saying to be, I would say the husband is a priest in the home. And if he's a slack priest or a neglectful priest or a spiritually double-minded priest, it will have a terrible effect. The, the father in the home, the husband of the wife, should confess the sins of the home as his sins not saying, oh, that's my wife's problem. That's her weakness. That's her deficiency. 
he should confess those sins as his sins. Why do I say that after saying that's the role of the priest? Because the priest in the old covenant was given for the people to go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, not just for his sins, but for the sins of the people. And so as a symbolic head of the people, the priest long ago would do that. Likewise, Christ, who is the true and final great high priest, he makes intercession for us now. And he did not say, oh, that's my people's sin. That's my bride's sin. He said, no, I want that sin. I'll taste of their death so that they don't have to. Now, in saying this, I am not saying that Christian husbands atone for their wives. You cannot repent for your wife. She has to join you in that repentance. Your job is to model, demonstrate, and lead her there. A Christian husband should intercede on behalf of his wife and children and should establish the worship of God. Genesis 18, 19, God says, I have called Abraham, I have have chosen him that he may command his children after him that what I, and I'm paraphrasing here, that what I've promised would come to him. There's something about Abraham's calling by God that through Abraham bestowing the faith upon his children in a wonderful way that they would receive the promises and by believing in the promises, what God promised to Abraham would be fulfilled 400 years later. That's what God is saying in Genesis 18. God has chosen Abraham that he may command his children after him. Joshua 24, 15, at the end of Joshua's life, he is saying, I'm about to die. And he then tells the nation, do not go down the road of false worship. Do not permit idols to exist in the land. Do not allow your children to intermarry with the surrounding nations. And then here, many of us, if we've been in the church for a long time, we can quote it. As for me and my house, we shall serve. The word is worship. The word is not just, we're going to go to church and do nice things for other people. The word serve, we will serve, is rightly translated, we will worship the Lord. So by this, I don't mean just a five-minute Bible verse, and then the rest of your home life is a living hell in which there's backbiting and fighting. You can't baptize disobedience. You can't try to sanctify you know, all of life by just doing some, some magical devotional time. The worship of God should be established in your home. You should lovingly lead and, and commend the gospel to the rest of your family. So with these realities in full view, I believe that all of what I've just described in very many particular aspects is what Paul has in mind when he begins to explain how husbands are to love their wives. Paul instructs them how to die for their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So notice the verb, uh, the, the adverb as. Husbands, do this. Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Why did Christ do this? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ does something and he wants something. He does something and he has a goal for the thing he's doing. And by this I say this is the manner 
that is how and the motive, that is the why of Christ's death. He actively, obediently died for her that she might become holy. That is why Christ went to the cross. Therefore, Christian headship as an imitation of the death of Christ must never countenance sin. Some Christian husbands believe that, oh, I'm called to die for my wife. That means I let her have her way. Or I let her opinions about what we do in our marriage be the standard. And you would think, did Christ allow the, the sin of his people to reign? No. I mean, it would be, it's heresy, right? So a Christian husband who does not understand the purpose for the death of Christ does not understand why he's supposed to be dying to self as the head. Dying to self is not fainting away and allowing faithlessness or, or sinful practices in the home to reign. Godly husbands do not yield that their wives might continue in sin. Now, when I say this, I don't mean, therefore, that as Christian husbands, we're just harsh all the time and Bible quoting all the time, but, but rather, I do mean that there is a, a humble, godly insistence on obeying God's word. That's what I, that's what I am, am thinking about here. Christ's giving up of his life was done that the gospel would be seen in the word of God and that might be the instrument of her cleansing and her sanctification. Christ desires that his bride be glorious and beautiful, not in any way diminished. Again, dwelling on, meditating on the, the death of Christ for the sake of his people and the purpose for why Christ died helps us as sinful Christian husbands to repent of the overwhelmingly common temptation and sin of being harsh or competing with our wives. Christ died that she might be beautiful. And he's not talking about physical beauty here in, in the way that husbands, husbands are supposed to be making their wives better. And if you, if you read, for example, in 1 Peter, it says the, the wife is a weaker vessel. If you read that verse and you celebrate it, like, I'm, I'm winning here. You've totally missed the point of what marriage is supposed to be. You're trading your life for hers. So Christ wants his bride to be glorious. Likewise, Christian husbands should desire that their wives grow in sanctification and in holiness. Verse 28 of Ephesians 5, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. How do you nourish your flesh? Food. How do you, okay. Just food. He cherishes it. How do you, what do you do every day to cherish your body? Sleep? Shower. Not all of us. Not all of us shave. The point is that daily, daily Christ is nourishing and cherishing the bride, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul instructs that the husbands are to love their wives in the same way. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. And then he goes on to describe how Christ loves the church. He loves the church as... Uh, as he did in his death, but also his persistence. 
Christian husbands should imitate Christ's motives and manner for obedience. So when you think of establishing godly worship in your home and just the simple, let's even dial it back, just praying with your wife every day. When you think about the dying to self that that will require, well, I'll have to have some sort of schedule. I'll have to make sure I'm not begrudgingly saying something to her before we want to go pray. It means I'm going to have to kill the selfish, blame-shifting, begrudging, complaining, evil old nature that is still present within me. That way, when we go to pray together, she wants to do it and doesn't feel like this is some sort of false religion in which we have substance but not truth, or form but not substance, rather. The point is that for Christian men to establish the love of their brides in their home, they will have to die. Just as Christ washes his bride with the word that happens weekly in Lord's Day worship, so husbands should routinely bless their wives for their spiritual good. If you want more background on that, 1 Corinthians 14, 35. Dying for the sake of your wife is not cowardly niceness. Again, the, the cult of nice in the modern American church reigns with much power. Dying to self is not just letting your wife do whatever she wants. Many Christians read these verses and say, oh, well, I need to just kind of recommend the things of the Lord or, or I kind of need to suggest going to church. No, there, there has to be a godly, humble insistence in a loving way. Christian dying to self is the willingness to bear the brunt of difficulty and repentance. 1 Peter 3, 7 Live with your wives in an understanding way. They're the weaker vessel, and that's not a sign that you win. John Gill enumerates manifold aspects of a Christian husband's love for his wife. This is a long quote. This is from a commentary that I love. John Gill is a wonderful commentator, especially in the Old Covenant scriptures. He's a fantastic commentator. This is a long quote, but I pulled this up because everything that we've talked about is the theology of the why and the how. The why is because Christ loved the church and we're saying something about Christ in how we love our wives. And the how is by dying to self. And now I want to say through John Gill's commentary, he is showing these are leaves and fruits of that theology of dying to self. Uh, As I said, this is a long quote. Bear with me. I won't comment as I read. John Gill says, this love consists in a strong and cordial affection for them and a real delight and a pleasure in them, in showing respect and doing, them, doing honor to them, in seeking their contentment, satisfaction, and pleasure, in a quiet, constant, and comfortable dwelling with them. He doesn't mean house. He means living. In providing all things necessary for them, in protecting them from all injuries and abuses, in concealing their faults. So just pause right here. Love covers a multitude of sins and covering their infirmities in entertaining the best opinion of their persons and actions and in endeavoring to promote their spiritual good and welfare. This love ought to be hearty and sincere, not feigned and selfish. It should be shown in private as well as in public. It should be chaste and single, constant and perpetual. It should exceed that which is born to neighbors or even to parents and should be equal to that a man bears to himself though not so as to hinder and break upon love to God and Christ. Many are the reasons why husbands should love their wives. They are given to be helps unto them. They are companions of them. They are wives of covenant. 
They are their own wives, yea, their own bodies, their own flesh, nay, as themselves. They are their image and glory. And especially the example of Christ in his love to the church and people should engage to it. Therefore, the Christian husband imitates the actions of Christ in the same hope. So if you took away one thing from this talk today, the the desire to become a Christian husband is to continue your road of discipleship towards taking up your cross and denying yourself. It is not a secondary aspect to the Christian life. It is at the core of who we are as disciples. And we take up our cross in the hope that Christ had. Christ, when he went to the cross, he didn't threaten those who were threatening him. He didn't revile but rather he was entrusting himself moment by moment to the God who judges justly. That is the God who raises the dead. Christian husbands therefore love their wives and die to self, repenting of sin, all knowing that God is the God who brings new life after death. So that is what I hope to be a very foundational aspect of what we do as Christians who desire to find a wife and court her and engage themselves to her and get married, as well as how we walk as Christian husbands. Unless this theology pervades everything about Christian marriage, it cannot be the imitation of Christ. It will be something else, but it won't be the imitation of Jesus. And therefore, we have to, as Christian husbands, uh, understand that this is something we must call ourselves to day by day. So with that, um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, in the moment of temptation, to sin against our wives in any way, whether it's through pride or grief or begrudging them or lacking compassion, that we would learn in the moment what it means to die to self. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as as men who need your word, please help us to see in your scriptures the commands, the privileges, the joys that attend your state of honorable marriage. We pray, Lord, for our, our wicked, horrible nation, which has destroyed marriage not only among the professing church, but certainly in our government as it rails against your pattern. Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent and to bear forth fruit in keeping with that repentance. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.